Will you please remain standing for the reading of today's scripture? From Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We are uh, so excited about tonight at 4 o'clock in the chapel with the Jubilee Choir and even more than that excited about what awaits uh, you in the Carolinas as we send you forth today in mission and in ministry and uh, with God's blessing as you go. Uh, look forward to seeing all of you tonight. We'll shoehorn you in the chapel, get there a little early, uh, 4 o'clock this evening for that. And James, thank you for remembering uh, David Sublime and our team who are in South Africa. I corresponded with David yesterday uh, to send wishes, our wishes, to uh, the Brentwood Society Church that today is celebrating uh, their 10th anniversary as a church together. And so I've sent them greetings and our love from each of you. And as they are there, we've got uh, young adults who are in Costa Rica as a part of the Metanoia Conference and we celebrate that the church is a global church. We are in many places today, and we remember those who are representing us in other places in the world. Well, if you're visiting with us today, you've caught us right in the middle of this series that we're calling Heartwarming, which if you know anything about John Wesley, you know that that word itself reminds us of his conversion experience, his transformational experience experience that happened in London, England on a street called Aldersgate when he reluctantly went to a Bible study. He was 35 years of age. He had been an Anglican priest for 13 years. And on that night, Jesus got personal with Mr. Wesley. And I don't have to tell you, when faith gets personal, your witness goes viral. So over the last four weeks, we've been thinking, using that as our theme, of some of the distinctives of our faith in the Wesleyan lineage, in the Wesleyan tradition. This morning, I want to invite you to think with me about a particular doctrine that is peculiar to Wesleyan theology. It is called the doctrine of perfection. Others call it the doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian holiness, or as we read or sang together in our first hymn that was written by Charles Wesley, the second blessing or the second rest. Albert Outler, who for many years was at SMU in Dallas, rightly described Christian perfection as the most distinctive and most widely misunderstood of all Wesley's doctrines. 
Now, Mr. Wesley based this doctrine, as he did all theology, on Scripture. And we talked about that the first week of this series. You see it in Matthew 5:48, which I noticed some of you, when Sharon read that, it's a little bit disturbing, isn't it? When that summary verse for the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:48, says, therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know if that hits you like it did me, but that command sounds unrealistic to me. It sounds overly utopian, a little idealistic, and really impractical. And to be honest, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just about lost me when he talked about loving your enemies. But when he starts talking about perfection, uh, I'm out in the parking lot, to be honest with you. And so it kind of evokes the question, why on earth would Jesus command his disciples to do something that we cannot possibly do? I've noticed in Bible study that often when we hit upon a verse that sounds too demanding, that we spend most of our time trying to figure out what Jesus didn't mean rather than what he did mean so that we can sort of soften the edge and make sure that everybody's in. But John Wesley built an entire theology around this single command. You don't hear it very much today. In fact, you probably never heard a sermon on Christian perfection. And when you leave at the benediction, you may not think you've heard a sermon on Christian perfection. But you still hear it, and typically you hear this at annual conference. We're just 10 days away from hosting annual conference here at Brentwood. We still need a few volunteers. And you hear it when the bishop every year stands up to ask Wesley's historical questions of the ordinance. And we have three ordinance who are going to be ordained right here at this altar on Wednesday night, June the 13th. I hope you will be here on that evening. Shelby Slowey, Allison Gossett, Adam Jones are going to be ordained among us, and we're going to honor them next weekend. But before they're ordained, the bishop will call them forward as a group, all the ordinance, and typically the bishop will ask 19 historical questions that Mr. Wesley asked and we've been asking since 1773. Now let me just relieve you and tell you I'm not going to mention all 19 questions. But there are four questions, the first four questions. Have you faith in Christ? Are you going on to perfection? Do you expect to be made perfect in this life? And are you earnestly striving after it? Now, here's what I've noticed in 35 years of being a part of the ordination service. I've noticed that the volume of response of the ordinance decreases with each question. It usually, it usually goes something like this. Have you faith in Christ? And you all will say, yes. Are you going on to perfection? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you expect to be made perfect in this life? Mm-hmm. And it drowns out almost to a whisper or a nod, which makes sense because when they're being asked, their family and friends in the congregation are sort of snickering because they have an image of you in mind in former days. Protestants who held to Luther's famous dictum, simul justus et peccator, means that we are simultaneously just and sinful. 
that we are a mix as believers of saint and sinner. And as Protestants, there were many who looked upon this doctrine, Wesley's doctrine of perfection, as a bald advertisement of spiritual pride and implicit works righteousness. And that can happen, by the way, did, does, and will sometimes happen. When religion goes to the head instead of the heart, it's pretty ugly. When our righteousness becomes self-righteousness, it's deadly. Luke 18, Jesus saw this and he told a story about it. You remember the story? The temple was having prayer meeting one night, must have been a Wednesday night. Two men came to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a separate one who knew the law, and the other a tax collector who worked for the Roman IRS. The Pharisee stood, listen to this, and prayed thus with himself. He said something like this, Lord, you sure are lucky to have me. Lord, I wish everybody could be like me. If everybody could be like me, the world wouldn't be as it is. I'm not like others. I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my investments but the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift his head. And beating his breast, which is the sign of repentance, said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked a rhetorical question at that point. Guess who went home right with God that day? The tax collector. Because whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles herself will be exalted. But that's, that's not what this doctrine of perfection is about. This idea of entire sanctification has nothing to do with religious pride. It's not about arrogance. It's about a deepening experience of grace and holiness. After Wesley's death, this particular doctrine fell into decay. As later generations of Methodists sought respect in the eyes of other denominations, the doctrine became a little what you might call diluted or watered down, and it began to fade into the background of the movement. About a hundred years later, in the 19th century, there were some Methodists who sought to revitalize this doctrine. They called it the holiness movement. It was a part of the Great Awakening that sprang up and gave rise to a number of Wesleyan holiness groups like the Church of the Nazarenes. Did you know that the Nazarenes came out of the Methodist holy movement? How about the Church of God in Anderson, Indiana? The Pentecostals came out of this movement. The Wesleyan Church came out of the holiness movement. Even Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, where my mother went to school and my in-laws, my wife was born of students there, Asbury College was established as a holiness movement, which, by the way, is still going. And so what, what is this doctrine all about, and why is it still a part of our conversation? Well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I think in order to understand it, you have to go back before Wesley. You have to go back maybe, I don't know, 1,700, 1,800 years before Wesley, 
back to its origin, back to Jesus. The word he uses in his signature sermon for perfect is teleos. You know what that means? It means complete. It means to be made whole. It means full grown. It, it means to be mature. Now, that's a far different word from our word for perfection or perfectionism that usually includes self-loathing. It doesn't mean to be free from all flaws and all faults. It doesn't mean that you'll never mess up, never make a mistake. Mr. Wesley believed that it meant that we can, in this life, actually become mature in grace that we can be marinated in mercy to the point, get this, where we no longer intentionally violate God's will. As we sang in our hymn, take away our bent to sinning. This is what Wesley believed, that as we become more cooperative with God's grace, that sin no longer dominates and determines our destiny. Mr. Wesley believed in what is called the purity of intention. In other words, because of the ongoing grace of God, it is possible for your motives to become loving. Now, this is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, a little earlier from what Sharon read, you've heard it said, you shall not murder… And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say unto you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. One translation says, if you insult or poor mouth a brother or sister, you're liable to the Supreme Court. What Jesus is doing at this point, he's going beyond action to intention. He's looking underneath behavior to motive. I love the story of the two neighbors who were not getting on together. One was a believer, one wasn't. The believer was trying his best to reconcile with his neighbor. One day he decided, I'm going to write him a letter, and he did. Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. When your dog made a restroom of my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges, so I'm writing this letter to let you know that your house is on fire. <laughs> Cordially, Bob. It's a nice gesture, but I question the intent. In the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks lustfully in his or her heart on another, you've already done it. He's going beyond conduct to intention, to motive. I think this is why when a crime is committed, in the investigation, the law always looks for a motive. If you can find a grudge, if you can find a reason, if you can find intent, then you will find the criminal. Jesus is not just trying, however, to alter our conduct. He's trying to change our motives. 
because he knows if the motives are transformed, that the actions will follow. This is why parents ask their children when they have broken the priceless vase, what were you thinking? Because whatever a person thinks in her heart, that's what we are. The transformation that we're looking for these days is not just about law and order, but that's important. It's about motive. It's about purpose. It's about intention. Why are you going to the Carolinas to sing? That's the question. It's about the why. Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and here it is, perfect, teleos, mature, whole. There's one other thing in this text. I want you to notice the last clause, the last phrase of Matthew 5.48, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've underscored and italicized that last phrase. It's important because the last phrase indicates that the standard for holiness is not the person sitting next to you. The standard, the benchmark for holiness is not the guy that lives down the road. It's the Lord himself. Have you ever tried to get by with saying, I have, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. At least I didn't do what she did or he did. And Jesus won't let, a, let us get away with that. The benchmark, the yardstick of our lives is God. So apparently Jesus gives this command because it is possible to become like God in our motives. Have you ever noticed that we begin to resemble what we worship? <laughs> that whatever your soul desire is, you actually begin to favor that. You begin to look like that. Paul described sanctification like this in 1 Corinthians 13. It looks like inward love. Listen to this. It's patient and kind. It's envious. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. A lot of us dropping out at this point. Doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then it's interesting in verse 11, he says, when I was a child, immature, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up, when I became an adult, I put away childish things. Now I know only in part, but someday, I will be known fully completely, and I will know completely. Faith, hope, and love, the big three, but the greatest of these 
is love. Kathleen Norris, the theologian poet, said it like this. I love this. Perfection, in a Christian sense, simply means becoming mature enough to give yourself to others in love. That's it. Let me give you an example, and I'm finished. Many of you know Max Licato, who is a best-selling author and pastor in San Antonio. Max Licato tells of how when he was a little boy, his mother would often tell him, you need to clean your room. Your room's a mess, over and over, she'd say. And Max said, I would ask her to go with me to look at my brother's room because his room was always messier than mine. And I'd say, look, Mom, my room is clean compared to this. Compared to him, I'm good to go. But Max said it never worked. Probably never worked for you either. It certainly didn't for me. And then he said, Mother would march me down the hallway to her room. He said, when it came to tidy rooms, my mother was absolutely righteous. Her closet was immaculate. Her bed was military straight. Her bathroom was sanctified. Compared to her room, Max said, my room was just wrong. (laughs) And mom would show me her room, and this is what she would say. Son, this is what I mean by clean. What Mrs. Locado did for Max is what Jesus does for us. He shows us his room. He gives us a picture of what love looks like. He says, this is what I mean by holiness. And he stretched out his arms and gave himself. This is what I mean by love. This is what I mean by sanctification. And I know you can't do it on your own. And so Jesus says, I'll help you do it. In Wesley's sermon on Christian perfection, he describes the character of a Methodist. You ready for this? A Methodist is one who loves the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. God is the joy of her heart and the desire of her soul, which is continually crying out, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none on earth whom I desire other than you. He is therefore happy in God, always joyful, as having within himself a well of water that is springing up to everlasting life and overflowing with peace and joy. Perfect love, having now cast out fear, she rejoices evermore, for she is pure in heart, and her motives are loving. That's what it looks like. And Mr. Wesley told us, and then he showed us. I have no idea where you are. I know where I am, and I'm far from that yet, but I'm striving. There's a saying in the United Methodist Church of Great Britain, all need to be saved, 
All can be saved. All can know that they are saved. And all can be saved to the uttermost. That means that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Did you know that God never starts something that he cannot finish? May it be so for me, for you, so that your life might actually become a benchmark and that your witness may be heartwarming to somebody else. In Jesus' name, amen.